It's a, it's a privilege to be able to bring uh, God's Word to you this morning. Our passage is going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, so I'd like to invite you to turn there. 1 Peter chapter 2, and our focus is going to be verses 11 and 12. And the, the youth group just finished uh, covering the book of 1 Peter on Wednesday nights, so you get to benefit from just a little bit of that uh, this morning. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. 1 Peter, written to those who are under severe hardship or even suffering because of their faith for the name of Christ. This is the macro context for for our our text this morning, the gospel power of a genuine life. There's a, a serious hypocrisy problem in the evangelical church at large today, evident to, to you, no doubt. An individual who, who professes a new birth, but then lives as if, they, as if they don't. Affirming the authority of Scripture on, on various matters, and then turning right around on Monday morning and undermining its authority on the basis of opinions or experiences. And what we're talking about, what Peter's got in view, is a, is a consistent pattern, of, a pattern of a hypocritical life. One that's not merely internal, but rather visible for all to see. Peter's going to tell us this morning, in our passage, that this damages gospel effectiveness to an unbelieving world. Living a hypocritical life like like that makes the gospel untenable in the eyes of some unbelievers. But a believer who genuinely, in accordance with the Christ they profess and and the new birth that they now have, is one of the most powerful instruments that God can, can use for his glory and for his kingdom. Peter, of course, speaks to an audience, and that audience's culture is remarkably similar to our own in one significant way. Unbelievers constantly criticize Christianity. They did this in Peter's time, and they do it now. And these opponents of God are very vocal, aren't they? in their disapproval of biblical morality, doctrinal truth in Scripture, basic forms of godliness, even the biblical Jesus Christ, and and they may attempt to to shape him into their image. And as you've seen recently, the world blames Christians even for the problems of society. In the eyes of, of many in the world, Christians and Christian principles are responsible for inequalities. Christians are to blame for racism. I've heard that. Biblical morality is responsible for people's mental health problems. The church doesn't help people. It hurts people. And if you throw all of that off, you'll be happier and more fulfilled and better off in life. That's, that's the world's message. This is the same basic perspective uh, Peter's culture had. And Christians who don't take seriously their testimonies add fuel to this and inhibit their usefulness. Living a genuine godly life is the single most effective foundation that you can have for making the gospel that you speak credible to unbelievers because they see that you have been transformed by the very gospel that you speak. You can't make people believe but you can have an effective testimony. Peter's audience, those Christians who suffer for the name of Christ, needed some motivation to persevere in their evangelism and in their discipleship in the midst of 
the stressful and, and difficult hardships they were encountering and would encounter. A fortified testimony is what they, they needed. And our text this morning is going to call us to fortify our testimonies in an inward, heart-level way and also in an outward, public way. So two directions to fortify your testimony. Pretty simple outline. Let your inner life be disciplined, and then let your outer life be honorable. Let your, outer, let your inner life be disciplined, let your outer life be, be honorable. First in verse 11, let your inner life be disciplined. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And Peter's very careful here to call his readers beloved. These recipients are the objects of God's immeasurable love. They are the living stones that he mentioned in verse 5. They are the ones who have been unified with Christ and built into the spiritual household of faith. Zach read a few verses to help us set the context. They are the chosen race, the royal priesthood. They are the holy nation, the people for God's possession. They are the ones who were not a people, now they are a people of God. He's making sure that we know he is speaking to this community, Christians, the church, God's people, real, authentic, regenerate believers. He's very careful to specify his audience because these instructions we're going to look at are virtually impossible to obey if you're not under the grace of Christ. If, you're, if you've not been redeemed by the blood of Christ, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, abstaining from the fleshly lusts that wage war against your soul is impossible because there is no war going on. You're being ruled by sin. You're under its domain. The best you can do is rearrange the flesh. These commands are, are directed at those who are the chosen, the people for God's possession, those who have a new birth. And on that basis, Peter can say, I urge you. If you have the King James Bible, it's, it says, I beseech you. I like that word. This is a strong urging. He's saying, I strongly urge you, church, to abstain from fleshly lusts. This is of the utmost importance, or Peter wouldn't be urging them so strongly after such doctrine he provided in the previous verses. Because this has to do with your testimony. This has to do with your ability to truly reflect the life-giving power of the gospel. Back in verse 9, Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness. One of the purposes of your status as a redeemed sinner in Christ is so, so that you might proclaim His excellencies and his excellencies being the work that he has done in you. Proclaim that excellent work. In verses 11 and 12, tell us how to effectively do so. We must display that the work of Christ has been done in us. We don't wield an empty message of Christ. The words of the gospel are life-giving words, life that has been given to us. And so in light of this call to proclaim Christ to those in your circle of influence, Peter exhorts us to now abstain from fleshly lusts. To be an effective witness, 
Peter's first instruction is not to take an evangelism class or to practice your argument skills or your ability to recite the Romans road from start to finish without pausing. His first call is to not participate in your fleshly lusts. These are desires that come from the sinfulness of your heart. You know, we often blame anything and everything for our sin, except for ourselves. You know, the devil made me do it. Well, the devil didn't make you do it, most likely. Peter speaks about our adversary, the devil, in chapter 5. He is the ultimate enemy of believers, but he's not yet in view. The world didn't make you do it either. These lusts that Peter's, are, that Peter's talking about aren't external temptations that, that happen to come across your mind and your eyes in your everyday life. These desires come out of you, out of the sinfulness of your heart. They're fleshly, Peter says. These are sinful desires that have nothing to do with your calling as believers. They have nothing to do with your new birth. They don't have anything to do with God. They're, they're opposed to God. They're opposed to your new birth. They are of the flesh. They are lusts, inordinate desires for sin. Do not be a participant in the desires that come from your flesh, Peter says. Believers have the ability in the new birth and in the power of the Spirit in the grace of Christ to abstain from their lustful flesh. Scripture says this is possible even in a culture that's dominated by immorality and, and moral relativism. This idea of abstaining is, of course, seen elsewhere in Scripture. It's often used in reference to ceasing from pagan indulgences that tend to fuel sinful desire. Acts 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 are, are prominent examples of this. Acts 15, 28 and 29, For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours to put no greater burden on you than these necessary things, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Luke is telling the Gentiles, essentially, don't revel in your freedom. There's a danger of reveling in your freedom. There's a danger of sin. You would do well to keep yourselves from practices like this, as it will add fuel to the fire of sin, not just your sin, but the sins of others. Abstain. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. You want to know God's will for your life? It's right here, your sanctification specifically that you abstain from sexual immorality. Paul here uses the same word applied to a specific sin pattern, namely sexual immorality. Abstain from that. God wants you to live in a pure, pure life. If you keep feeding the fire, it's, it's going to keep burning. Keep throwing gasoline on the flame and it'll just keep blazing. Your sin is looking for fuel. It's like a wild beast that stalks around looking for, for food. Your flesh always wants more. Scripture would tell us, don't feed it, starve it. And this begins at the heart level with, with lusts. Peter uses the, the same word in our passage to describe this. So perhaps he has in view pagan indulgences that fuel sinful desires. Perhaps he has in view sexual immorality, abstaining from that. I think it in, 
encompasses more than just one pattern of sin. Broadly, fleshly lusts refers to what the Apostle John speaks about in his first epistle, 1 John 2, verse 16. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. The lust of the flesh, a a desire for evil things. And these are the desires that come from your rebellious self that's still in opposition to God. I think this is what Peter has in view in our passage. At the new birth, we're given a new life, a new way with new desires. But as we are reminded by Scripture and just practically in our everyday life on a daily basis, that doesn't mean that you're totally freed from the brokenness of your flesh. That doesn't mean that you are hereby now immune to temptation. And the old patterns of of desire don't just disappear, and, and, and the desire to sin has been mystically removed from you. Peter's telling us the exact opposite in our passage. Peter is speaking to Christians, remember? That holy nation, the people for God's possession. He's saying that you have fleshly desires in you that wage war against you. Abstain from those. These suffering Christians in Peter's day still struggled with sin inwardly at the desire level, and so do we, even after our conversion. There's a hangover, as Mark says, from your before Christ days. MacArthur says, even though regeneration by the Holy Spirit produces a new direction with godly longings, that new life remains incarcerated within the old flesh, precipitating a battle between the flesh and the spirit. And these desires wage war against the soul. In verse 11, they have declared war on your new birth. Your flesh still wants the reins. And when you repent and turn to Christ, you have declared war on your flesh and your sin, and your flesh doesn't want to give up the reins so easily. I mean, this, this verse by itself wipes clean the notion that Christians are zapped with some kind of mystical power when they're born again and you suddenly don't experience temptation anymore. And if you do, then you must not be a Christian. Scripture says the opposite. Christian, you're going to struggle with sin even at the desire level. There is a war, as Pastor Brian has reminded us recently, that war is an evidence of your new birth. It's a good thing there's a war. You don't achieve perfection at your new birth, but, but you do have a new direction. If you're a believer, redeemed by the blood of Christ, then you have a new direction. You have a new desire to please God and obey Him. You have the means and the grace now to abstain from those fleshly desires. You have the ability to say no to sin and yes to God, the ability to repent. And Scripture doesn't tell us that this is easy. It tells us this is a war. It's a war against the soul, a long-term war. And war is not easy. But if you're a believer, you're on the winning side of the war. You have the Holy Spirit and the grace of Christ. Remember who you are in Christ, which is where Peter starts this argument in verse 9. So, put your righteousness of Christ armor on and wield the sword that you have in Scripture. The Apostle Paul tells us there's a battle that takes place within a believer. And the battle is between the flesh and the spirit in Romans 7. He chronicles a a believer's inner conflict. We know that God's way is good. 
but there's still this frustrating pull toward the sin that we now hate. There's a new birth, a new way, a new direction, but the old flesh is still there pulling at you. Your fleshly desires war against you. Abstain from those desires, Peter says. Peter instructs in in chapter 1, verse 13, prepare your minds for action. Be serious and set your hope on grace that's found through Christ Jesus. This is how it's done. You prepare your mind for action. You're serious and self-controlled. You set yourself on the grace of Christ. Grace that's extended to you now, and you set your hope on the, on the coming grace as well. If you struggle with a besetting desire, a, a fleshly desire that keeps rearing its ugly head and waging war against you, that desire is not your master. You have a new master now. So prepare your mind for action when that old master wants to take the reins back. You have grace now, and there's coming a day by the grace of Christ when you will no longer be afflicted by that temptation. If you're in Christ, then your, your, your sin desires are, are fighting a war, but it's an, it's an unwinnable war because the war was won on the cross of Christ. You are unified with him in his resurrection. That day's coming. But until that day comes, Peter says, we must do the hard, inner-level, heart work of saying no to these lusts. In this context, we do this inward work so that our outward life would genuinely reflect the transforming power of the gospel of Christ, which is what Peter is about to, about to connect. But first, Peter reminds his readers that they are temporary residents. He does this periodically throughout the letter. Strangers in a strange land, aliens like foreigners in a foreign nation. This word literally means the one who is alongside the house. The person who's not in the house, not part of the household, but's right next to it. It it denotes a person who is living in a country that's not their own, but is living next to citizens from that country and is therefore considered a, a foreigner. This is a fitting word for Christians who do not belong to the world system, but are living alongside those who do. Have you noticed, even more, I think, in the past three or four years, that this world is it's just not our home? Have you noticed that? Have you felt that more the past few years? Christians are very strange aliens nowadays. Our society is not one to embrace a biblical ethic for morality or even basic truths of creation, but rather celebrates the undoing of God's designs. I mean, believers are are, are not members of this world's society. We're not subjects of its system. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says in Philippians 3. We're like visitors that are traveling through a country, making a brief stay, but this isn't our final destination. Peter is saying, as people like that, abstain from the fleshly desires that war against you. Let your inner life be disciplined because you live alongside others who are subject to their flesh. Let a difference be in you first at the heart level. You know, a dynamic that you see in in 1 Peter 
is first the establishing foundation of your inner life before even speaking about your outer life, your outward conduct. Turn back to chapter 1 for just a moment. I'd like for us to see this dynamic because we have to get the order of this right. Look at the end of verse 1. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. This is all about who you are before God, who you are in Christ. None of this has fundamentally anything to do with your outward behavior, does it? No mention even of work at all. This is the work of God in you. Verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God gives you a new birth according to his merciful character. You don't produce a new birth in yourself. It doesn't have to do with your outward conduct or your ability to earn it. It's a grace from him. Verse 8, And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This is about faith, your love and affection for Christ. You don't even see him, but you rejoice with inexpressible joy. How was that produced? You produce that yourself? No. He has done a work in you that produces this. Verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We mentioned this text a moment ago. Prepare your mind. Set your hope on grace that's brought to you through Christ. This is inward work. This is not outward conduct. Now, in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's 15 verses in before Peter so much as mentions an instruction about any kind of outward conduct. And even after this point, he continues in this dynamic. Status in Christ and doing the work of the mind at the heart level, then the outward conduct. And keep in mind, this is all in the macro context of hardship and suffering for the name of Christ. This is part of our doctrine of suffering. Who you are in him motivates you to live for him outwardly with effectiveness, even in the midst of, of hard times. Peter is writing in this way in our passage this morning. Speak about his work to those who don't know his work because you've been transformed by his work. And so he says first to abstain from the fleshly desires within you that wage war. For gospel effectiveness, let your inner self be disciplined. And we're, we are reminded again that the Christian faith is not fundamentally about keeping external rules and habits of legalism. We are free in Christ. We don't add Christ to the law. It's all grace. You remember who you are now in Christ? Live in the grace found in him, and you abstain from the desires that characterized you before. Then, and only then, can you properly do what Peter says in verse 12. And that is to let your outer life be honorable. Let your outer life be honorable. Verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. In order to effectively 
witness the gospel, a Christian's transformed inner life must be visible. Conduct yourselves honorably, some of your translations may say. This, this is the outward behavior. He, he's literally saying, keep your behavior excellent. This connotes the loveliest kind of, of visible goodness. Keep your behavior in accordance with what is good. Easy to say, hard to do, isn't it? Even if we're keeping in check the sinful desires that wage war, this is still difficult and takes thoughtfulness. There's a reason Peter mentions being serious, preparing your mind, being alert, and living in that which is good several times throughout, throughout the letter. You know, I, I love a good marinated steak, don't you? I do. I don't have them very often, but I enjoy them greatly. If you let the meat marinate long enough, the flavor of the marinade permeates the entire cut, which is the point, right? There comes a point when you can't really separate the flavor of the marinade from the meat. The cut is saturated by it. It's indistinguishable from the flavor of the marinade, every aspect of it, every bite. The same is true with us. The flavors of the things that you marinate in are what's going to permeate you. Jesus says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Again, this is a reason why Peter starts with the, the inward work at the heart level. If a teenage boy saturates himself in, in YouTube videos that are permeated with frequent profanity and sexual innuendo, then... It would be absolutely no surprise to me when that young man begins thinking and speaking and acting in those ways. If a teenage girl saturates herself in gender ideology TikToks throughout the day, every day, then it's absolutely no shock to me when that young lady begins to think and speak and perhaps even engage in those behaviors. But this isn't just for the young. What is it that you are marinating in? So often, older Christians, too, saturate themselves and dwell on lies, on that which is vulgar, upon unjust things, on ugliness, on, on the things that are deserving of condemnation, on things that are morally polluted. And those Christians have the flavors of those things permeating their outward life. And there may become a point where there's no discernible difference between their conduct and the conduct of those who don't profess Christ at all. If that's the case, then why would unbelievers think you have anything better than they have in their sin? We have to be alert to this. Awake, Peter says in chapter 5, preparing our minds. What should our minds be filled with? What are we to marinate ourselves in? What are we to dwell on? Well, Scripture would tell us. In Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. If you are a believer, then you should be marinating in what's true, what's honorable, what's just, that which is pure and lovely, what's commendable, what's morally excellent, what's praiseworthy. Dwell on these things. Let these good things in Christ affect your thinking and then your, your outward conduct. 
These are the flavors that should salt your life and your words, right here. Live in an excellent way among the Gentiles, Peter says. Gentiles here refers to unbelievers, the nations, the unregenerate world, the society in which you are like a foreigner. If Peter's readers were to be effectively a witness for Christ among the Gentiles who were bringing hardship on them, it was essential for them to manifest behavior that was above reproach for their gospel witness. Another way to say this is to have a dignified life so unbelievers will see true godliness. Verse 12, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Have a dignified outer life so unbelievers will see true regenerate godliness. So they see an evident transformed life. With your outward conduct, you demonstrate the validity of the gospel and the work that Christ has done in you. Words of the gospel are necessary to share the gospel. You have to proclaim Christ with words, which is what Peter already instructs in verse 9. But personal witness that backs those words up has great impact. If it's seen that you have been transformed by the gospel that you profess and that you speak, they are more likely to see its credibility. If an unbeliever sees that you haven't even been affected by the Christ you claim, then why would they think, again, you have anything better than what they have in their sin right now? Verse 12, in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. This kind of speaks to the warped and deceived morality of the unbelieving world. I mean, we see this today almost every day. The wicked call good evil and evil good. To the world, affirming and enabling sin is the moral choice. If you do anything or say anything that might in some way inhibit a person's ability to do what they want in their flesh, then you are morally evil, according to the world. Peter says, in a case where they speak against you as an evil person. In that case, when that happens and that will happen, you have a fortified testimony by which those accusations don't hold because they observe your good deeds. Those accusations don't stick even before the eyes of other unbelievers. I mean, Scripture wants us to take this so seriously that this is a qualification for an elder. A pastor must have this kind of fortified testimony before being considered for church leadership. Paul lists this qualification, notably in 1 Timothy 3.7. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church. But this is not just for pastors. Peter is telling nearly the same thing to all believers here in verse 12. The difference is that pastors must have this to be an example in order to be qualified. Peter tells us in this passage to have a good works reputation that's based upon the genuineness of your inner life, which fortifies your testimony. So these accusations of being an evildoer don't stick even before the eyes of other unbelievers. Sometimes, and, and Peter talks about this in chapter 4, we bring hardship onto ourselves and we conflate it with the world persecuting us because of our faith. Peter tells us not to conflate these two things in chapter 4. And this is one of the reasons why. The outward behavior of a Christian should not be dishonorable. Don't let the hardship be 
because you are acting dishonorably. Don't let the mockery come on you because you're acting like a knucklehead and then conflate it with suffering for Christ. Let that never be, Peter says. Let your outer life be honorable. If you're going to suffer, let it be for the name of Christ, in other words. Let the grace and truth of Christ exude from you. And again, this isn't about following a bunch of external rules in some kind of legalistic way. This is living your life genuinely in accordance with your genuinely transformed heart. And it may require some self-reflection on our part if there are consistent patterns of the flesh. God gives a new birth to any who come to him through Christ in faith and repentance. So come to him. Even though we have a new birth, it's hard to live honorably sometimes. I'll be the first to acknowledge that. I mean, when you see a legitimate, a legitimate injustice committed against an innocent person by, by the wicked, when you observe predatory activism that stalks upon the vulnerabilities of young women and young men, it's hard to conduct yourselves honorably in the face of that. Because we know and see the evils of this world and and they're heinous, and they spit in the face of God. And we long for the day when the King of Kings returns to put a swift stop to it. But until that day comes, what does Scripture call us to do? Live honorably. Especially when we have social media at our fingertips. I, I can only imagine what social media use has done to damage the reputation of genuine Christians because they're not considering or don't care about their gospel effectiveness. Now, don't misunderstand the Scripture. God never once tells His people to be milquetoast in the face of sin. I mean, Peter's final call to these suffering Christians in 1 Peter 5 is to resist him, our adversary the devil, and the world system that he inaugurated, and be firm in the faith. That's his last call to suffering Christians. But it's one thing in your commitment to Christ and His Word to take a stand against sin in accordance with biblical conviction, it's another thing entirely to fight one egregious sin with even more egregious sin. Peter's speaking specifically here about gospel effectiveness, remember? The purpose for having a fortified testimony here is so that unbelievers will one day glorify God. They observe your good works, and they are convinced that the gospel you claim has power. They see that it has changed you. And they know that the power of Christ can, can change them, too. Verse 12, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You proclaim the excellencies of Christ and the work he has done in you, and you have a genuine life that reflects that transformation. The power from that is far more effective than any argument or logical reasoning. It's far more effective than any angry post or, or comment on, on social media. We want to see those who are not glorifying God one day glorify Him, don't we? We want those enslaved to the lusts of their flesh freed from that slavery, don't we? And this is the instruction God has given us to that end. He doesn't tell us to change somebody's heart. What does he tell us to do? Proclaim and live rightly. And the purpose is so they might glorify God. 
So they will call upon the name of the Lord. So they will bring themselves voluntarily under His Lordship. Submit to Him. So they will repent of their sin and be enslaved to it and their flesh no longer. So they will then proclaim the excellencies of the one who did a work in them. Glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation is is an Old Testament concept when on occasion God would visit mankind for either blessing or judgment. A couple of Old Testament examples of this. Ruth 1.6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Naomi heard that the, that the Lord in his providence had broken the severe famine. He visited his people with provision. And so she left Moab with her daughters-in-law to the land of Judah. And you, you know the story of Ruth. And also Zechariah 10.3 My anger burns against the shepherds, so I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah. He'll make them like majestic steed in battle. God will arrive and judge the false leaders who lead his people astray. But at the same time, he will visit blessing on his real people so they can conquer their enemies. This is the same concept that that Peter has in mind. The New Testament uses visitation mostly to indicate blessing and redemption. And when that redemption is rejected, then it becomes a visitation of judgment. God's redemption is inherent in the use of the day of visitation here in 1 Peter 12, 2.12. Because these unbelievers observe Christian virtue and good works in the lives of believers, some of those unbelievers will be privileged to glorify God when he visits them with redemption. When God comes to them, they will glorify him, is what Peter's saying. Now, it is a simultaneous biblical reality that you follow these commands. You might live honorably. You might have your inner life under discipline. And an unbeliever still rejects the gospel because their heart is hardened. And you aren't responsible for that person's rejection. Scripture never tells us that. You are responsible for exactly what God says you are, to proclaim and to live rightly and genuinely. You speak and you live, and God does the rest. But this is how many come to Christ. Maybe this is how God brought you to himself. Someone in your life took the gospel to you And you saw how the grace of Christ transformed that person. And the message of the gospel they spoke to you had immediate credibility. Maybe that's your story, your testimony. God uses his people as they speak his word, especially when they have a fortified testimony of righteousness. In the 1940s, there were American missionaries whose names were Herb and Ruth Klingen. They were missionaries to the Philippines. And the 1940s were, of course, the middle of World War II. And if you know your modern military history, you know that the Philippines was originally under the banner of the Japanese Imperial Army. These missionaries became prisoners of the Japanese Imperial Army in this time for about three years. In Japanese prison camps at this time were notorious for excessive and over-the-top brutality. 
Herb Klingen kept a diary of his family's experiences during, during this time. He noted how his family's captors would torture, starve, and kill the other prisoners. He also noted how he and his family, he and his wife, were targeted by the guards a number of times because of their evident faith. And they were captured not because they were enemy combatants, but because they were Christian missionaries. But the prisoners particularly feared and hated the prison commandant named Konishi. Herb Klingen described a frankly heinous plan this man Konishi forced on the inmates. He notes in his memoir called Song of Deliverance that Konishi found an inventive way to abuse them even more. He planned to increase all of the inmates' food rations, but he would give them unhusked rice to eat. Rice has a razor-sharp outer shell, so you can't eat it that way, or it would cause severe internal bleeding. It would kill you. But they were given no tools to husk it. They had to use sticks and branches and stones and husk it manually by hand, which would take hours. And Herb Klingen notes this would expend more calories than the rice itself could replenish. He noted that this was a, a brutal death sentence for everyone in, in the camp. Now, Herb and Ruth Klingen were spared by the providence of God when the Allied forces liberated that camp in 1945 before this diabolical plan was in place for very long. And Klingen and his wife found out years later, after the end of the war, long after the end of the war, that Kanishi, that prison commandant, the brutal man, was found working as a groundskeeper at a golf course in Manila. He was arrested, tried, convicted, and sentenced to public execution by hanging for war crimes. But that's not where this story ends. Before his execution, Konishi chose to declare publicly as his last words, that he had confessed and turned to Jesus Christ, in part because he was so convicted by the words and the testimonies of those Christian missionaries he had so abused. Herb Klingen and his wife had no idea until many years after this man, Konishi, was executed. They had no idea. All they did was obey what God said, speak the gospel and live rightly. I mean, this, this is the power of a genuine life that's been transformed by the gospel. That even a deeply wicked man like Kanishi could one day confess the name of Jesus Christ and bring glory to him right before he was about to meet him. And so Peter tells us to fortify our testimonies. If there was a time to fortify your testimony, it's now. Because hardship is coming because of the name of Christ. It is coming. And so Scripture prepares us for that. Let our inner life be disciplined and our outer life be honorable. Because you don't know who's watching. You don't know how he might use you in the life of someone who doesn't know Christ. And he'll use you. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word, for your revealed truth to us. Thank you for giving us texts like this that can prepare us for, for coming hardship that we will face. Lord, you tell us elsewhere in Scripture that if we claim the name of, of your Son, that we will encounter suffering just like he did. 
Lord, help us to prepare for that. Help us to be bold in our proclamation of the gospel and be firm in our convictions. Help us to live rightly. Help us to wage lion-hearted war on the, on the desires that, that wage war against us and let us live with honor among those out there that need to see a genuine life transformed by your word. In Christ's name, amen.